Hello, my name is Daniel Clark, and you're listening to Politics and Perspective, a new podcast by the United Nations Association Youth Platform. This series will uncover emerging trends, breaking news, and incredible stories in politics around the world. Joining me today to discuss the issue of vaccine nationalism is Sir Jeremy Farrer, Director of the Wellcome Trust and SAGE and WHO Advisor, Dr. Rebecca Weintraub, a Harvard Assistant Professor and Physician, and Dr. Shebnem Kalemli Ozkan, an economist whose paper on the economic impact of vaccine nationalism has itself gone viral. But first, who better to give us a comprehensive introduction to vaccine nationalism than award-winning journalist and fellow podcaster who has been right at the heart of all COVID-related news for the last year? My name's Natasha Loder. I'm the health policy editor at The Economist. My colleagues sometimes call me the vaccine nerd. (laughs) So first things first, Natasha, what is vaccine nationalism? How might we define vaccine nationalism? So, I mean, this very simply is where a country prioritises its own population before supplying vaccines to other countries. It means holding on to supplies rather than exporting them. Now, one of the things I hear a lot being said at the moment is that rich countries have just pre-ordered lots and lots of vaccine and they're kind of getting a lot of flack for that. That in itself is not vaccine nationalism. That's called advanced purchase. And that's also something that COVAX has been doing, which is this kind of global buying club. And what's really important about advanced purchase is that it signals that there's a huge demand to these companies, which they then obviously start meeting. And so you kind of need these big advanced deals being made. So the deals themselves are not vaccine nationalism. It's kind of what happens afterwards. We saw a recent scuffle between the UK and the EU in terms of vaccines. What happened there? And in terms of progress made on vaccinations, what did the UK do right and what did the EU do wrong? All right, well, let's start with the UK. And what the UK did right was it was all about timing, intent and planning. And so the UK went in early on vaccines and it was quite aggressive about how it did that. And so starting in April, which is almost a year ago, right? They set out this sort of strategy for buying vaccines and they brought in this biotech investor to help them pick candidates. And then they just opened their pocketbook and they chose a mixture of ideas. They chose vaccine platforms that had never actually been worked, but were sort of a little bit riskier, but could work. And then they chose vaccine platforms that were older and more reliable and were much more likely to work. And actually they all worked. So that was was lucky, but they had a sort of mix of strategies. And, you know, I remember, you know, in the middle of the last year, a lot of the economists on the paper were sort of arguing that actually from a sort of an economic point of view, it just made enormous sense to invest as much as you possibly could in vaccines, like, you know, many more billions than we actually did. I mean, in actual fact, I think the UK invested about four billion, which is quite a lot for a small country. And it went in early as well. And then, you know, sort of later on, they were fast with regulatory approval. And they've also taken the information battle very seriously earlier on. So you've got a lot less vaccine scepticism in Britain than you do in Europe. So there was, you know, it was a complete package. I mean, I I just want to say they executed it really well. I mean, in contrast to many other elements of the response. Now, the EU were just very cautious in getting going. And so 
throughout 2020, as I was watching this and I was watching the UK place pre-orders and the US place pre-orders and they were supporting you know, manufacturing plants, they were thinking about how they were going to get glass files. And I'm thinking, well, when is the EU going to pull its finger out and get going? Um, and remember that the backdrop to this is that the EU has a high-risk older population and it's already had a really bad COVID outbreak. And so it was curious to me that they didn't get moving more quickly. And speaking to colleagues, they tell me, look, the Brussels bureaucracy was just not well versed in the intricacies of placing multi-billion dollar euro contracts. And so they just took longer. They were worried about price. They were worried about liability. The EU decided for political reasons that they wanted to buy as a block. And I just think it made them slower, less nimble and less able to be bold. You know, if you're in a single country and you want to do a big push on buying vaccines and you want to take risks, that's sort of perhaps a little bit easier within that context where you're not accountable to lots of other countries. So that's that's kind of where they went wrong. You know, their deal with AstraZeneca was a full three months after ours. Their regulator was slower. They also chose to go for a kind of slightly longer approval process for reasons of liability, which they wanted uh, to be passed on to the pharmaceutical firm. In a nutshell, I would say Britain took the issue a lot more seriously early on. So would you say that the in the case of the vaccine rollout, it's much of a bureaucratic issue? I mean, it's clear that China and the EU are both going to struggle with this. They're both kind of bureaucratic monoliths. <laughs> well, I don't think the EU is a bureaucratic monolith when it comes to rollout, because those rollout programmes are going to be going on nationally. So you're going to see very different outcomes in different countries. And what you had with the procurement was one thing, but once those vaccines then arrive in Germany, in France, then that's down to those countries. For example, France, they typically have much higher levels of vaccine hesitancy than other countries. And so they've got quite a unique problem there to sort out. And then, you know, you have to get the messaging right as well. And of course, you've got lots of different languages to deal with. So vaccines are being administered at a much lower rate in lower income countries. Are there any lower income countries that are standing out from the crowd? Yes. So I think the first thing to say is that the early vaccines that we've had, Pfizer and Moderna, are not in that high demand in lower income countries. That's because they're difficult to distribute and they're expensive. So most lower income countries made the decision that they wanted to wait for cheaper and easier to distribute distribute vaccines, and that's the AZ vaccine. So really, there are only a, a handful of lower income countries that have started vaccination. And they're either using the AZ vaccine, or of course, they're using uh, vaccines from places like China. So from what I can see, the, the lower income countries that are vaccinating are Bangladesh, Nepal, Myanmar, Pakistan, and Zimbabwe. Most of those haven't done many, but Bangladesh and Nepal do stand out. Nepal's done about 2 million people. Bangladesh has just started. They're going to have about 4 million in total uh, from India. So those are the ones I'd highlight. Um, and then, of course, the COVAX facility has also started shipping. And we've seen Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire receive their first shipments and start vaccinating. And we're going to see much more news from COVAX in the coming weeks and months. And that's all really exciting. It's worth taking a minute here to give a brief explanation of the COVAX initiative. 
COVAX stands for the COVID-19 Vaccines Global Access. It's a global initiative aimed at equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines. It's led by the World Health Organization, among others. And in more simple terms, COVAX is an organization set up to counteract vaccine nationalism. And in the last 10 days, it's shipped 12 million vaccines to 19 different countries in need around the world. So what are the characteristics that make you better at the vaccine rollout if you're a lower income country? Well, this is a really interesting question. And there's actually a whole package of things that countries need to do to show that they're ready to distribute vaccine. And that's something the World Health Organization helps to assess. And it starts with really basic things like you know, mapping your cold chain. Do you have doctors and nurses and community health workers who are prepared for the rollout? Do you have enough frontline workers or can you train them? What kind of health records do you have? How are you going to call people up? Actually, do you know, on the health record system, uh, I'm not even sure how that problem is being solved. I just know that it is a problem. But anyway, the WHO has to assess readiness. And it can also be sort of legal issues and customs issues that countries need to sort out to receive the vaccine. And so... This has been going on for months and months and months, started last year, and where countries are ready but they have gaps in their readiness, that's been the sort of role of the international agencies like COVAX and WHO, like UNICEF, to sort of see about how those can be patched up, how those can be fixed. And so when we hear about the first countries that are receiving these COVAX vaccines, they've been assessed as being ready. I was talking to Seth Berkeley from COVAX yesterday, actually, and he was explaining that they have this dashboard. And he said, you know, last year, lots of the countries were orange or red on this dashboard and slowly they've been turning green and you know once they're kind of green then then obviously um COVAX can can ship towards them I think the problem for COVAX is going to be the sort of long tail of countries and you know there are some countries that don't want vaccine I mean Tanzania is one of them you know they've taken a very different attitude towards COVID and you know you've got to remember that some low-income countries have pretty rubbish governments and the governments may not think that COVID is a problem. They may promote herbal remedies uh, for COVID. And so, you know, you do need governments to offer full-throated support for these vaccines as well. I spoke to Dr. Shebnem Kalemli Ozkan about her work on the economic impacts of vaccine nationalism, which we'll feature later on in this show. She said that the cost of vaccine nationalism in advanced economies would be extremely high. So why do you think the UK government is pursuing such a policy of sharing vaccinations, but only after every adult has been vaccinated? And do you think the UK perhaps should act a little bit faster? Gosh, this is a really important question. And, and obviously, there is quite an active debate about whether you should you know, start to donate doses before you do your low risk populations. But then you also hear epidemiologists saying, well, having a part vaccinated population is also a problem, because then you allow um, dangerous mutations to arise. I think we have to get the high risk populations vaccinated all around the world. That's what the COVAX initiative is set up to do. I think what your expert, Dr. Sebnam Kalemni Ozkan, was saying was not necessarily, you know, that you should change course and transfer jabs. Actually, I think she was also really arguing that you should increase the supply. But here is the point we're at. And so you've asked the question, you know, 
are we vaccinating too many uh, British people? Should we be exporting vaccines? And I think whatever the rational outcome is, politics is going to play a part in this. And, you know, you have to answer the question, are the 30-year-olds in your country going to be happy to be told, sorry, you have to quarantine for two weeks when you come back into the country because we gave away your vaccines to another country. Oh, and by the way, your government also paid 500 million to the COVAX last year to make sure that there were vaccine supplies globally. So that's a really difficult conversation to have. And so I think what will probably happen is that, you know, as the year progresses, there will be a larger vaccine supply and the UK will be very generous. And because we've started early, we may be able to start donating early too. Because if our supplies start coming in faster than we can use them, it may be that you know, rather than accepting the vaccines into the country, we can just distribute them through COVAX because perhaps we have enough to vaccinate where we are. I don't know if I've answered your question. I think it's a really difficult question to answer. What what I might want as an outcome is going to be different from what other people do. I think we have to acknowledge that the people who live in the country will have a view about this. Um, And so the government has to kind of weigh up also what it wants as an outcome in its own country as well. Yeah, the PR benefits are certainly really, really interesting in terms of, uh, you know, number 10 strategy on this. Uh, I saw an interesting poll the other day saying that there was actually polls in favour of sharing vaccines to health workers and elderly in other countries. Uh, and I think I do agree with your point that, you know, it's one of those things where people, uh, when faced with the reality of having to quarantine for two weeks once they come back or something, may change their opinion on those polls or rather uh, retract what they may have said in terms of when they were polled? I mean, I I suppose you have to imagine, well, you know, look, if we get a big delivery from, or we're about to get a big delivery from Novavax, and, you know, we've done the 50-year-olds, we're sort of working on the 40-year-olds, but demand is quite soft, that might be a really great time to start donating. And so, you know, you may find you've got less of a problem than you imagine, because we're sort of quite early at this We've got a whole year to get through. There's a lot, hopefully, a lot of vaccine coming through. And so there may be more scope for this to work out in a good way than in a bad way than we might imagine. I'd, I'd like to be optimistic, actually, about this. No, that's very true. I'd like to be optimistic too, for sure. So vaccines, of course, are intellectual property. And when we speak about vaccine nationalism, we're always talking about countries, which, you know, does make sense. But what can the pharmaceutical companies do to help this issue? Could they perhaps release their intellectual property into a global patent pool? So I haven't heard a good argument made yet for vaccine IP being transferred. And, you know, at the moment, what we're seeing is licensing and so az has licensed its technology and transferred the technology all around the world and so my first question is is like well why do you need the ip itself rather than the license and you certainly need ip if you want to start a competing business you know if you just want to make the vaccines as cheaply as possible then you need a license and so you've seen the serum institute of india doing that but i'm open right i'm not a purist about this and if there's a good argument for IP being transferred, then let's hear it. You know, this is a pandemic and, 
you know, if ever there's a situation where you kind of have to think differently, then this is it. But then equally, you know, we know that IP is the lifeblood of the pharma industry and they don't want to give it away and we don't want to deter them from investing in vaccines if when they create something useful, we say, well, okay, you have to hand it over. So I think there's a balancing act to be done. And my question always on IP is like, what is the IP you want? and Why do you need it? Why can't you do it with a license? We'll end on a fun, or perhaps, or let's just say a hypothetical one for the moment. If you could imagine the pandemic hit maybe 10, 15 years ago, do you think vaccine nationalism would be more or less of a problem then? Much more of a problem. That's such a great question. Absolutely, it would have been a huge problem. And in fact, the reason we're in such a good position, and I know people probably listening to this think, oh no, it's like this huge problem. We're not in a good position, but we are in a good position or we're in a better position than we were, is that we saw what happened with H1N1 and we said, let's not do this again. And Richard Hatchett, who's the head of this vaccine uh, group, CEPI, He was in the White House when H1N1 hit. He saw the vaccine nationalism at play. And, you know, I was talking to him last year and he was well aware that the problem could happen. And, you know, he was one of the kind of organising forces behind COVAX. It was like, how do we avoid this happening again? And so we have this mechanism now. And, you know, yes, It has a relatively limited goal of getting 20% of the needs of countries around the world this year. But that's still a mechanism that we have created that will create much more global equity. And actually, in some countries, you may be surprised how useful that 20% is. And then also remember that that 20% is your whole population. And, you know, a lot of lower income countries, you know, take Nigeria, for example, they have 50% of their population are under 18. So if you have lots of children, you're not going to be vaccinating them anyway. So I just sort of feel like we're in a much better position than we were before. We have learnt from our mistakes. What I do wish is that it hit maybe a few years later because, you know, we created this sort of SEPI initiative after Ebola to kind of advance the way we make vaccines. And we were working on things like mRNA printers. We were working on machines that could print out vaccines. We weren't quite there with that technology. So it would have been nice if if it had happened a little bit later. But anyway, yes, we have learned from our mistakes and we're doing a bit better. And I'll tell you what, if COVAX is as successful as I hope it's going to be, then when the next pandemic comes along, that facility can be used from day one to order vaccines, to fund vaccines and to distribute them. A recent poll showed that the majority of UK citizens would be happy to miss out on the vaccine and instead donate their jab to health workers and the vulnerable in lower-income countries. It was, however, far from unanimous, and carrying this out would certainly cause some controversy. But what might the scientific experts think? I spoke to a key figure in the UK and the global public health response to COVID-19. My name's Jeremy Farrer. I'm the head of Wellcome Trust. My background's in infectious diseases and global health, but particularly in emerging infectious diseases for, for the last 20 years or so before I, I joined Wellcome. And I serve as an individual capacity on, on SAGE uh, for the UK government, advisor at the World Health Organization and part of the UK government uh, vaccine task force. 
Over 20 million people have now received their first vaccine in the UK. And by the end of the summer, certainly all adults, and I hope increasingly children as well, will be vaccinated. That's a remarkable success story. Britain is now, though, in a position where it has more vaccines than it needs for itself. And I totally understand why a government would want to vaccinate its own vulnerable communities and healthcare workers in its own country first. I totally understand that. But then, and very quickly then, those vaccines need to be available globally. And we do need to make the vaccines available. It's all very well for governments to fund the COVAX facility in the ACT Accelerator, the coalition that's brought together everything related to COVID uh, convened by the World Health Organization. But money can't buy you vaccines if the vaccines are hoarded and kept in warehouses and owned by countries. We need to both fund the COVAX facility, but we also need to make the vaccines available because otherwise the COVAX facility cannot buy them and then make them available to everybody in the world. So this is the time to make these vaccines available globally. So what do you make of the argument that vaccinating countries where there is a massive outbreak, so for example, Europe and the USA, is more important than vaccinating parts of the world which are not really affected by COVID, maybe in terms of their viral transmission rates, such as Australia or New Zealand, or maybe through their more youthful demographics, such as Africa and India? I have to say, I don't agree with that argument. You you want to be vaccinating the world. And I think a lot of the reporting of COVID-19 has been very domestically focused. Actually, India has had very, very bad, severe waves of the pandemic. And I worry a lot that India, South Asia is going to see future waves of the pandemic. And vaccines prevent epidemics. You can vaccinate after an epidemic wave, but you're much better to vaccinate before an epidemic wave. So don't wait until you have the pandemic washing over you, your health system is is collapsing, people are dying in your hospitals. Use your vaccines to prevent pandemics, not react to them. So I'm not in favour of saying we'll vaccinate where it's at its worst today. I can see the arguments, but actually, I think you'd be much better off offering vaccines globally to prevent these epidemic waves happening than reacting to them when they do happen. Africa has very limited health facilities. We all know that. And very few healthcare workers per head of population. Let's offer the vaccine to to those populations now Let's not wait until healthcare workers start getting sick and dying and having to tie or time off work. Let's vaccinate them and offer the vaccine now to prevent that. That's the power of vaccination, not reacting after the event. Just to touch upon what you were talking about, how you know in Africa there's a lack of uh, healthcare facilities. Do you think that this pandemic is basically going to cause the world to reevaluate global health in terms of putting more investment into global health and prioritising it a little bit more? Yes, I think it will. And that needs multiple ways of working. Of course, health, as with education, is prime responsibility of governments, domestic funding, and making sure that that education and health are seen not as a cost to a society, but an investment in a society. And you, you cannot have economic growth and development. You cannot sustain a society unless you invest in education and in health. And yeah, I very much hope that all countries of the world will reevaluate the need to invest in health and education as a result of the lessons learned from COVID-19. But of course, not every country can afford to do that. There are many countries that are left behind. There are le- many countries where economic growth is very vulnerable 
and where, of course, there are a lot of people living in extreme poverty. And there the world has got a responsibility to contribute, along with domestic funding, to allow health and education to be prioritised in the future. But it does need both of those. It needs responsible governments to invest in our health and education and infrastructure, and it needs a responsible global community that will support that investment with additional resources where they are needed so that you have a combination of domestic and international funding. It needs both, and in different balances, depending on which country you're talking about. We often hear on these televised government briefings that the UK has an excellent genomic sequencing capability. But is it the case that countries that won't be vaccinated until 2023, such as many African countries, and who do not have the same capabilities, may not be able to detect the new variants until it's too late? Yeah, genomic sequencing of the virus is really very, very important. And the UK is in an extraordinarily strong position with the capacity to sequence, as as you rightly say. That same capacity is not available globally. But even in the UK, the genomic sequence isn't a magic bullet to understand new variants when they appear. There will always be a lag phase between when new variants appear and when you pick them up epidemiologically or you pick them up through sequencing of the virus and so genomic sequence is not the best way to protect yourselves. Genomic sequencing needs to be available in more parts of the world, you're absolutely right, we need to share the information but it's not the answer to the problem. The answer to the problem is to reduce transmission, prevent the new variants from appearing anywhere and to offer vaccines globally. Genomic sequencing is the testing that allows us to see a variant when it appears But if you like, that's too late. I watched your TED talk in preparation for this podcast. And in that, you said you worked in Vietnam for 18 years. uh, And during that time, you worked with SARS, the prequel, some would say, to this. What were the lessons that you learned from that? Yes, that that seems a long time ago now. That must be, I don't know, four or five years ago, is it? And SARS-1, if you like, wasn't the only one. The world had many, many warnings over the last 20 years. There's a long list of of national, regional, or even global epidemics, pandemics that have happened in the last 20 years. And the world did not take those warnings seriously. And the world of the 21st century is driving those epidemics, ecological change, environment change, climate change, urbanisation, change of human and animal interactions, and of course, trade and travel. So none of those are going to go away in the future. So epidemics and pandemics, uh, which can totally disrupt countries and the world economy, are going to become more frequent, and they're going to become more complex. And the most important lesson I've learned in the last 20 years is invest in those things before you need them. And those investments will be there when you need them, as you inevitably will. They have to be there before an epidemic or a pandemic, and they have to be there for you when an epidemic and pandemic hits. And don't wait until you see a crisis before reacting. Yeah, that, that's a really, really good point. I was listening to Philip Tetlock, the author of Super Forecasters and a, a great political scientist. And he was saying that, you know, I think he thinks that governments will now spend a lot more time investing in precautionary measures for these types of sort of black swan events? Maybe. This this has been so disruptive to health, of course, but also to indirect consequences of health on all other healthcare, cancer, diabetes, maternal child health. It's been disruptive to economies and education. It's, it's questioned trust in government. 
I think it has led to changes in government at elections and other ways that may not have happened without COVID. So it's had major domestic political ramifications and it's changed geopolitics. Uh, These are major events. And I think we can assume, we should assume, these sorts of events will be more frequent and more complex in the future. So I hope finally the lessons of the last 20 years have been learnt and we invest in the prevention of these major events and the ability to much better respond than we have done to date uh, over the last 12 months. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And that really echoes um, the interview that we had with Dr. Shebnem Kalemni-Ozkan, which will also feature on this podcast, just about how global value chains and global supply chains are really just so linked across the global economy that, you know, you really can't get started unless we're all kind of on the road to recovery. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we Science has really delivered in 2020. We have diagnostic tests which work, rapid tests that work. We have sequencing of the variants. We have drugs that save lives as a result of the recovery trial and the solidarity trial. We have now, just in the last few weeks, we've started to make sure there is oxygen available and PPE to protect healthcare workers. But vaccines are crucial to this and uh, vaccines will ultimately, with the other elements that we talk about, they are the exit strategy to this pandemic. But science is not the end point. Science is only of so much value unless the vaccines, the treatments, the diagnostic tests, the oxygen and the PPE are made available to people and people then able to take it up. It's about access rather than just the science. Science points us the way to the exit for this pandemic. Access is what provides that exit strategy. If you were given a carte blanche and you could distribute vaccines however you liked uh, in the most efficient way to end the pandemic... What would be the way that you would do that? Not perhaps the most realistic, but perhaps the most efficient? Well, I think it's both efficient and realistic. Firstly, there has to be immediately, yesterday, a massive investment in global manufacturing supply. The world is, is, does not have enough manufacturing capacity to produce the vaccines. That's where I would start, by enhancing the vaccine manufacturing capacity globally in a distributed way, which wasn't just dependent and available to a small number of countries, but was distributed globally. So there was manufacturing in Asia, there was manufacturing in Europe, in Africa, in Central and South America, as well as in Japan, China, the United States, because that's the best way both to cope with this pandemic, but will also be important for any future inevitable pandemics. The second is when countries essentially the rich world. When the rich world has vaccinated its most vulnerable in its communities, yes, the elderly, senior people in society, healthcare workers, uh, when it's vaccinated the, the most vulnerable in their communities, make all of the vaccine doses they have available to the COVAX facility within the umbrella of the ACT Accelerator and the World Health Organization, and let that partnership, which is global in nature, make sure that those vaccines are available to all countries in the world. This is a moral, it's an ethical argument, of course, but it's also a scientific, it's also a public health, and it's also a financial and economic imperative. We cannot rebuild the world economy until we vaccinate the world. That is the stark choice we face. Next, we're speaking to Dr. Shebnem Kalemli Ozkan, a professor at the University of Maryland and a co-author of an economics paper that featured at the World Health Organization press conference in the New York Times and in the Financial Times. 
Her paper estimated that if advanced economies continued to follow a policy of vaccine nationalism, in which all wealthy nations were fully vaccinated by mid-2021, and poorer nations were largely cut off, then the international trade, production and finance networks would still be disrupted by the virus. And this would leave advanced, emerging and lower income economies much worse off than if there was a more equitable global vaccination programme. Your work focuses on vaccine nationalism, on the global economy, uh, and it's really got the attention of a lot of high-income countries' governments, and obviously the media in high-income countries as well. How do you see the impact of COVID-19 on lower-income countries and emerging economies? The impact is going to be worse on those countries, for sure, because on one side, they are not getting the vaccine, and then on the other side, from the start of this they never were in a position to be able to spend as much as the advanced country governments in terms of the fiscal packages and stimulus and all that. So they will definitely end up in the worst shape. There has been a narrative early on about this that, oh, maybe emerging markets and developed economies are not going to be that affected. But I think that's just an artifact of the fact that we don't have good data because there is not enough testing or we don't measure the deaths very well. But I think they are going to be, you know, the group that is going to be worse affected from this because they are going to be affected from the trade and production channel that advanced economies are affected. On top of that, they are also still not taking the pandemic under control. And now with the limited supply of vaccine, that's going to get harder and harder, especially if the mutations are going to occur faster and faster. So, I mean, our estimate shows that that group of countries are definitely going to be the worst affected. Thank you very much. And you join me from Washington, where President Joe Biden was inaugurated last month. Uh, just how big a job does Joe Biden have on his hands in regards to vaccine nationalism? A big job, because obviously with the new administrations, uh, U.S. is back to its role as the global uh, leader. And as I said, the U.S. administration did already announce that they are going to be part of the COVAX initiative. So I think U.S. can do a lot on this. And uh, should, actually. And that's actually also what the administration already uh, announced. It's, of course, a big job because it's not just shipping some vaccines, right? I mean, we, we are right now in a bottleneck. We have a serious supply and production problem. So that has to be ramped up. And since U.S. is one of the countries where vaccine is produced, I think they do have a huge role in this. I read the other day that there was a $27 billion shortfall um, from COVAX. So, yeah, it really is... Uh really is a lot of work to do for President Biden. Exactly. But I mean, again, I mean, this the idea is to make up for that shortfall as a joint uh, collaborative effort. So it has to be a multilateral approach of many countries. But again, you know, it is important to highlight that number does look big, but compared to the losses we are estimating, which are in trillions, it is not big, right? Everything is relative. So that's the key message of our paper, the investment shortfall in COVAX initiative right now, the 27 billion number is much less than what advanced countries can lose uh, if uh, emerging markets and developing countries keep getting sick and if they cannot handle the pandemic in 2021. So do you know uh, specific number wise how much, for example, developed countries, emerging economies will have to lose? How much does the global economy set, is set to lose if, uh, if vaccine nationalism continues? Yes, we estimate these under various scenarios because, of course, you have to uh, make some assumption about how much vaccine will there be in advanced economies and in emerging market and developing economies. But one of the more realistic scenarios where we assume advanced economies are done with their vaccination by mid-2021 and by the end of 2021, emerging markets and developing countries are only half of the way, then the, the world cost is going to be around $4 trillion. 
And the half of it, actually, this is the interesting part. So 49% of the 4 trillion is going to be borne by advanced economies. Even they achieve uh, universal inoculation. Yeah, because they are very, very integrated to the world trade and the production network, advanced economies. So really worrying stuff. But finally, Dr. Sebnam, you're an economist by trade. How do you see the changes in the global economy post-COVID? So the changes on the global economy post-COVID, I'm afraid there is going to be a push for less globalization, more protectionism. I don't like it, but I mean, this is a fact of life and this is the realistic case. It was already something that started before COVID. Now it's going to get faster, but I do believe we should push back on this because, I mean, it is true that globalization amplified the pandemic, right? I mean, that's going to be part of this backlash because I mean, obviously this is a virus and that it traveled very quickly through traveling, right? And we are living in a world where people travel. So it is definitely something that amplified the pandemic. But what we are trying to make sure people understand, and this is a key conclusion of our research, globalization is also the only solution. You just cannot go back to 30 years overnight. I mean, we are living in a very globalized world and you just cannot turn that clock back that quickly. Yes, you can start doing that type of damage, but it's not going to happen that quickly. And the more you try to turn that back, the worse actually this pandemic and the next, there will be another pandemic is going to get worse, right? So globalization is also the only solution because of this multilateral approach, because of collaboration, I mean, at the end of the day, the discovery of the vaccine is an outcome of globalization. I mean, we know how many scientists and how many companies collaborated on this. So we shouldn't forget that. I mean, uh, I think there will be a trend like that, but I think we should do everything in our power to resist that trend and to, to really defend globalization and show the fact that globalization is actually going to be our savior. So it's clear that if we're thinking about the number of deaths and the economic impact, then we know that vaccine nationalism is only going to prolong the suffering brought about by the pandemic. But how were we supposed to know that this would be the case? This is, of course, a completely unprecedented situation, isn't it? We have seen this pattern before. Vaccine nationalism was quite clearly propagated in 2009 with respect to the H1N1 virus. That's Dr. Rebecca Weintraub. She's an assistant professor at Harvard School of Global Health. When I first researched vaccine nationalism for this podcast, Dr. Weintraub was one of the first people to warn of this trend, all the way back in March 2020. Remember, a vaccine was developed within seven months, but most high-income countries turned directly to the pharmaceutical companies and began to procure and negotiate large advance orders for the vaccine, crowding out poor countries. And although several of these countries, including Australia, Canada, and the United States, agreed to make the vaccine donations for the low-income countries, they only carried out these donations after ensuring they could cover their own populations first. So in relation to COVID-19, who are the biggest perpetrators at the moment of vaccine nationalism? That is an unfortunate question that there's multiple people on the list at this point. So One complexity we have is those who've been early to procure have bought beyond their need. So right now, 80% of the vaccine doses from Pfizer and BioNTech that will be produced in 2021 are already reserved, and 100% of the doses from Moderna expects to produce are also reserved. And those that have been actually, in a sense, procuring beyond their need include Australia, Canada, Japan, the United States, and several countries within the EU. 
Your work for the Ariadne Labs has really raised the alarm on vaccine nationalism. But what's going to be the global cost and how might countries such as the US ensure equitable access to vaccines so that we can end the pandemic as soon as possible? That's a wonderful and complex global question. So achieving this is going to require a level of global cooperation that's actually going to prove not only difficult, but may take longer than most people realize. So right now, to take a step back, 10% of the world's population has had COVID-19. And to eliminate the risk of future outbreaks, we need 70% of the world's population to be immune to the coronavirus through vaccination or infection and recovery. And the idea and the concern that we raised early on in 2020 was that the evidence is quite clear. If we distribute the vaccine based on epidemiology and ethics and empathy, we could end the pandemic faster. And now what we're seeing, unfortunately, with these acts of vaccine nationalism is the opposite, unfortunately. So many researchers have reminded us to model the effects of vaccine nationalism. For example, one group found that if countries continue to monopolize the COVID-19 vaccines, it will cause twice as many deaths as distributing them with respect to equity. Another study showed that if wealthy countries invested $25 billion now to procure additional supply for the low-income countries, the benefit-to-cost ratio would be 4.8 to 1. In my view, vaccine nationalism might just be the biggest problem that we'll have to overcome in 2021. The epidemiological, economic and moral factors all seem to lead to one rational conclusion. Now, we need brave political leadership to follow that trend. So far, the politics of selfishness and irrationality are winning, but there's still so much of the game left to play. I've been your host, Daniel Clark, and you've been listening to Politics in Perspective, a podcast by the United Nations Association Youth Platform. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate it on whatever platform you use and share it far and wide. This episode was produced by myself and edited and produced by John Munro. We'd like to thank Ollie Honess for his fantastic graphic design work and of course to all of our guests. Thanks again for listening.